If you're a nature photographer and you are thinking of transitioning to video and wildlife filmmaking, then this episode is for you. My guest this episode is Jaya Prakash Bhujan. Jaya Prakash is the 2017 National Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year. And he won that award for an image that if you're watching this on the YouTube channel, you will see up right now. If you're not, if you're listening on the podcast, I'll, I'll describe the picture. It was of an orangutan up to its waist in water, looking out from behind a tree. And I'm not, I won't talk too much about this because Jaya Prakash goes into detail and I would love for you to hear it from him. But what I love about Jaya Prakash's story is that he made this transition from photographer to wildlife filmmaker and he's done it really successfully. And I know that so many of you out there are in the same position where you want to start using your gear to, to take pictures as well as record video and do that in a way that you could transition into actually earning a living from it like Jaya Prakash. So no more from me. Let's get on with this, uh, this wonderful chat with Jaya Prakash after a word from our sponsor. This podcast is proudly powered by Battleborn Batteries. Let the power of lithium take you on your journeys across the outdoor world. Battleborn Batteries is the industry's top choice for lithium-ion batteries. Reliable, safe, and long-lasting, Battleborn makes the sustainable and lightweight drop-in replacement for traditional lead-acid batteries. Are you ready to make the switch to lithium and switch to green energy? If so, all batteries are in stock now, and you can shop today at battlebornbatteries.com. Jaya Prakash, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very early morning schedule. I know you're in Singapore right now. It's super early. Uh, to, you're taking the time out to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jake. Uh, it's a pleasure. I mean, thank you for inviting me for your show. Absolutely. You know, what, what I found really interesting, um, you're, you're quite different to a lot of the guests we have on because most of the guests are established wildlife filmmakers that we have on the show. But what really captivated me about your story is that you are um, you're a, a National Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year Award recipient of 2017. And you're now recording more video. And we'll get in talking about why you're doing that. But I really like that because I think so many people now are doing a very similar thing. And it used to be that the gear was the barrier to entry. You know, you'd have to have a stills camera and you would have to have a video camera. And now, of course, we're in the place where uh, you, you know, your stills camera or your video camera, depending on how, which way you want to look at it, does both. And, and so, so many people can now make that jump and switch over back and forth. But before we get into that, I would love just to hear your background, kind of what it was that got you into nature photography in the first place, however far back that was, whether it was at two years old or 25 years <laughs> old. Let, let's hear all about it. Sure, sure. So I, I kind of grew up in the mountains back down south in India. Um, uh, at a very young age, uh, when my uh, father decided to 
um, you know, study his PhD. Uh, they left me with my uh, grandparents when he moved to another city to actually, um, you know, do his education. So I spent a large part of my uh, childhood with my grandfather, who was uh, one of those uh, super rich farmers who had uh, acres and acres of land when uh, he was doing a, a huge amount of farming. In those days, uh, there were really no um, reserves, like tiger reserves and all that you see in India now. There were, there were really no uh, demarcation that, you know, this is a reserve and this is not a reserve. So we kind of lived uh, on the periphery of, uh, uh, which is now a reserve. Um, so I was, so I just grew up in an environment where, um, you know, I've uh, seen tigers just walking with my grandfather into the forest, um, seen hundreds of elephants migrating from, um, um, which is now Kerala, down south to the other parts of uh, Karnataka. Um, grew up chasing owls, chasing birds. Um, some of the monkey species that I remember I used to chase as a kid are almost extinct now from where I come from. Um, so generally grew up in a place just surrounded by a lot of nature and wildlife. Um, and... Uh, so I think it was kind of a natural progression for me probably to be doing what I'm doing today. Uh, but this is not how I started, though. Um, I was at the IT, ITS uh, industry for almost 19 and a half years. Um, before I uh, decided to quit, I said, I'm done with this. I want to do something that I really care about and I really enjoy doing. So um, and then I started chasing, uh, you know, my passion for travel and nature photography. And of course, uh, now videography in the in the recent past, um, and things things just happen. I was in Borneo uh, one weekend because I was actually uh, I'm still working on a on a book on primates of Southeast Asia. We have some of the most endangered species of primates um, across Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Uh, so I was just traveling extensively across Southeast Asia, uh, hoping to do like a, a photo book on uh, endangered primates. Um, and then uh, accidentally um, happened to take some uh, shots of uh, a wild orangutan crossing a river. Uh, it went viral and obviously, you know, I, I won the National Geographic Award for it because um, uh, historically orangutans have been seen in water and playing with water and stuff like that in captivity, uh, but not really in the wild because they actually hate water. Um, and especially these right. were waters where there were crocodiles. Uh, so I think that caught the eye of uh, some of the judges when they were uh, evaluating. And uh, uh, life kind of, uh, it kind of put my new career on the fast track. Um, my social media grew overnight. Um, and you know how it is. It's loads of interviews, newspaper interviews. I was kind of all over the place. And by then I was just in Singapore and uh, even my Singapore Straight Times, which is a local newspaper, gave me a one full page on the uh, on the newspaper. So, uh, so yeah, so more kind of my uh, career took off. With, uh, sometimes they say, you know, one, one, one good image can change your life. So in my case, I think that was a perfect example how just one amazing image can make your life. Absolutely. Uh, then I started... <laughs> 
And I just want to say, because I, I have the picture over on my other computer here, and, and I'll put the image up on the thumbnail so people can people will have seen it, you know, and I'm sure be familiar with it. it it's so amazing because just looking into that orangutan's eyes it, it and the way that it's holding the tree, that, that emotion that it seems to ooze, you know, from its predicament that it's in and being seen in that way is it, stunning. And it's the, the old adage, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. It, it really is. And it shows you like, you know, he's been, he's been caught in this predicament, this dangerous situation. And, and so I can totally see why it won. And, and I think it's amazing. I, I love the fact that you weren't out there to take an image to win an award because I think this this is something where certainly in filmmaking a lot of people make films to try and win awards you know and it's such the wrong path to to go down you know you were there for other reasons you were trying to make, get pictures for a book and it just happened to turn into this and you know I, I I love those stories because it shows you know you you had a passion to be out there in the first place you weren't just out there trying to get a picture to win an award and you just were lucky to get this shot and and you took a whole bunch of shots with this one did you stay with the orangutan as it crossed the river and came back again how long were you there well I was honestly I was there uh, on the second eye river trying to photograph proboscis monkeys swimming across the water because that's that's a photograph right. I'd imagined in my mind for my book because they're amazing swimmers and sometimes I've seen them swimming with the babies on their back like a, yeah. an entire group. So one morning I meet one of these arrangers um, who frequently I used to uh, you know talk to and I was living on a on a houseboat on the river because there's really not many places um, to stay. Um, invited him over for coffee and I was I was just talking to him and I said, "Have you seen uh, any provinces group around this area?" And then just out of nowhere, he says, uh, it's a long time since I've seen Professor's monkey swimming across the river. But last week I saw an orangutan in a river. That's how it happened. And I had goosebumps because I'd done enough research wow. to know that uh, it's really rare to see an orangutan literally, you know, crossing a river. Uh, he gave us some vague uh, directions. Um, it was quite far away, almost 50 kilometers by road, equal to 50 kilometers by road. But we were on the, on the sea. Um, so I asked my guy if it's possible to get there. So then we called for a speedboat, uh, a four-seater speedboat. And then we took the speedboat to this, uh, I mean, obviously in the, in the river, it's hard for, for people to give you exact location. So we had like a fair idea where it happened. And then it was three days of waiting on a, on a four-seater speedboat. Um, and then finally, one day before I had to leave is when all of this just just unfolded you know it was just blessed to be there at the right time at the right place that's fantastic the 11th hour i talk about that a lot yeah. it always <laughs> seems to be the 11th hour yeah. that things happen you know yeah. the amount of times we've been on shoots and you have nothing up until the last day well absolutely everything absolutely. <laughs> well people ask that, me all fantastic. the time yeah yeah i mean uh, i think in a recent interview somebody was asking me i, I uh, because you know video video is a little more tricky right I mean, maybe you come right. to it later. Sometimes if I spend 100 hours, uh, my actual filming hours may be like 20 minutes, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you're waiting around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I think it's 
you know, it's one of those things that people think all wildlife filmmaking is just waiting for months on end until you film, you know, 10 seconds of action. And of course, it's not all like that. It may be with certain species in certain parts of the world. Uh, sure. There's different types of filming. But but um, but yeah, it, it, it's incredible how, I mean, one of our shoots, we were out and to film the sardine run and we filmed pretty much nothing in the first four days. We only had five days out there and we ended up filming the whole show on the last day, you know, 45 wow. minute show for National Geo. Well, actually it wasn't for Nat Geo, but it, it was subsequently shown on there. But the whole show was filmed on the last day. And, you know, that is just how it goes sometimes. But um, Jaya Prakash, let's let's go back to that moment where you decided to give up your career and, and move into wildlife photography. Um, you know, how, how much of a strain? There's a lot of people in that situation, a lot of people who have taken the the road of security. You know, they wanted to be a photographer. They wanted to be a filmmaker. But they needed to pay the bills. And, you know, it, it can be a slow climb to get a career based in wildlife filmmaking or photography. What was that moment like when you decided enough is enough? Had you saved up and you're in a place where you could now, OK, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it so long. Or, you know, what was your your kind of plan as you set to take on the role as uh, this new career of a nature photographer? Well, this is, this is probably one of... Uh most frequently asked questions, especially when I have my talks in schools and colleges. A lot of mm -hmm. youngsters, um, you know, want to become filmmakers, photographers. Uh, but honestly, in my case, it was a little different because um, I was um, a lot more financially secure because I was in a very senior position um, in the IT, ITS industry. I'd spent 20 years doing that. While I continued to do photography as a hobby, though, it was not like I just yeah. randomly did sure. that. Every opportunity, every weekend I was filming, um, a large part of my second half of my career, I was doing a global role, so I was working from home. So I had access to my early mornings and late evenings. There were some lakes nearby. I was kind of addicted. So every morning, yeah. 4.35, I would be there in the lake just photographing. Um, so it was, a, you know, it, it, was, it was a process. It was, it was something that was in my, playing in my mind for quite a while. Um, but at the same time, uh, it was not an easy decision because especially when uh, you're used to an uh, established workplace, you know what your monthly income is going to be like. Uh, life is a lot more planned and all of a sudden you entering a, a fresh career, uh, almost like a newbie um, because you've not done that full time before. Um, so... I wouldn't say it was easy, but a little bit of pressure on myself. But I said, I'm going to give it maybe two or three years and see how it goes. And uh, if it really doesn't work out, then maybe, you know, I, I get back to what I was doing. But then um, for me, I was, I was very sure that I wanted to take this chance, uh, irrespective of uh, what happens. But I think um, it's important uh, so I would say do this only if you're really crazy about what you want to do. Uh, yeah. Because I, I, I feel like a lot of people, especially a lot of youngsters, think it's a really cool job because one day they see my Instagram page and say, oh, this guy is in Africa one day, next day he's in Japan, um, next day he's... So in fact, I, I stopped posting pictures of myself uh, from these locations because I was feeling I was kind of sending the wrong message to the youngsters because... Oh, interesting. It's It's... 
because I, because these days there's so much of marketing happening, right? People like to post with all the big cameras, 600mm lenses and stuff like that. Sometimes I think um, it kind of gives a wrong message to especially uh, young people. I feel a lot of people on my social media or Instagram pages messaging me um, disappointed because just out of school or college, you really can't afford all this stuff. Impossible, right? We're talking about 30, 40K worth high-end equipment. Uh, but at the same time, all these people are very, very passionate. And I don't think there are many people out there who are giving guidance or directions to these people. So I often tell them, you know, wildlife filmmaking or photography is not about expensive equipment or long lenses. Uh, one of my favorite lines is, you know, there's a different subject for every focal length you have. Okay, you only have a, a 50 mm lens. Why are you chasing birds, right? Yeah. Go go yeah. chase something. There are there are different subjects, you know. So, uh, so depending on the focal length of your lens, you can actually create very interesting stories of um, you know different subjects. Because I think in the in the hobbies world, uh, especially newcomers, a lot of people think um, um, you know like cats, big cats, or lions, or, um, or birds in flight seem to be uh, you know the the best part of it, but there's more to it. For my favorite species are mudskippers. I spend hours <laughs> just lying in the in the mud flats just to uh, you know film mudskippers. Uh, so um, so I think there's this there's more to it. Um, and um, like I said, you um, make the career change if it really means something to you, and if you're really really crazy about it, that uh, it kind of like pushes you to the limit. To excel if you really want to do well in this industry because again like I mean um, you are a master coach so uh, not an easy industry uh, to even break into because it's quite competitive and uh, there are a lot of people out there doing amazing work so um, <clears throat> yeah you know. and, and that's one of the things about social media is of course we see this amazing work and and if we compare ourselves constantly and consistently with that work we start to feel like our work isn't good enough. And I, th I think it's amazing that you decided to stop posting. I think that's, that's fantastic because social media is something that has just, it's got away with us completely. I mean, we're in a place where, you know, it's all about wowing with the next picture, wowing with the next post. How beautiful does your, uh, you know, your feed look? And of course, you know, we all, even someone like myself being in the industry, I see pictures on there. I go, wow, these, these images are stunning. How, how could I ever take a picture to compare with that, you know? Um, but as, as you and I both know, it's, it's not necessarily, I mean, there is the fundamentals of taking a photo, but what your photo had in it was, as well as being a great photo, you know, technically, it had that that, um, you know, we would, in the filming world, with we were always trying to capture behavior. Well, in this, you captured a moment that just, is it, it has an explanation that comes with the very moment of seeing it. You, you understand that that orangutan is not in a happy place. And, and, and it's those moments, and I think probably if that moment had even been caught on a phone, you know, it would be as worth you know, absolutely. You know, as as much as it is being caught on a professional camera, because it's what the picture says, not what it was taken on. 
And so I, I admire you for doing that, for taking, you know, the, the stance on not posting, because this is a huge problem I see with youngsters, especially because now, you know, you and I no, no doubt grow up in a world where we just had, uh, you know, we had goals and we worked and worked and worked along to get to them. We didn't have these constant uh, um, things popping up in our life telling us we had to be better or telling us that we weren't good enough or or trying to make us compare. You know, now with social media, there's a comparison, constant oh. comparison every day. And people don't feel worthy. And also they don't see that you have put in decades of work to get to a point to win an award like that, you know, or to own a $40,000 worth of camera gear. Because I'm sure you didn't have that when you started out. No, I couldn't so, afford them. <laughs> exactly. And so we all start in the same place. There's very few people who start with the right gear. And you know, the people who do don't actually really know what to do with it. So sure. because they ha they've not gone through those experiences. So I admire you for that. I think that's fantastic. I, I think what I would love to know, and I'm sure the listeners are, uh, really want to know as well, when was it that you decided that you were going to start clicking over to the video icon on your stills camera? <laughs> when was it you decided, okay, I'm going to try some video? Well, I think um, like, like you were just talking about, uh, I think when I started, it was all about trying to take uh, beautiful pictures, but then I realized um, at some point um, every day I see brilliant images on Instagram or Facebook and all the social media pages. But then I started thinking, um, you know, how many of those images I remember, uh, or how many of those uh, moments that I remember that I've seen in the last few weeks, and I can't seem to remember many. So I'm assuming it's the same with many people. Uh, so I started thinking, you know, how can I, how can I, how can my pictures make a difference? Uh, so I think at some point I started thinking, I, I directionally wanted to move away from just making beautiful images uh, to telling stories. So then I started thinking there are limitations to the kind of stories I can say with photography. <clears throat> I mean, you still can, though it's a very powerful medium, but there are there are limitations. Uh, so I said, uh, how can I do, uh, you know, longer stories, complete stories, better stories. So I think that's when I um, switched to uh, videos. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this whole COVID situation has been a blessing in disguise for me. Uh, uh, because uh, most of my work was uh, overseas, uh, across Borneo and uh, Japan and some projects in Africa. But... Um, when COVID happened, all my projects were on hold. So now I said, uh, you know, what do I do? I'm living in Singapore. It's a um, uh, nature, we call it a nature in city. Or a, or a, it used to be called a city in a garden. Now it's a, we, we're focusing on city in nature. Uh, though I've lived here for about six and a half years, I never really explored my own backyard because I was mostly working overseas. Singapore was like a hub for me. Uh, so I said, why not? Uh, so then I went up and I looked at what was what work has been done in terms of whatever little bit of nature and wildlife is there in the country. Uh, so I had two choices, just go around taking uh, pictures in Singapore and, you know, like sharing on, like you said, Instagram or Facebook or uh, do something for meaningful, something more substantial, something something that 
uh, I could wow people with or something that people can appreciate. Uh, so I started thinking and then, um, yeah, I started off with a recce, uh, started frequenting some of these reserves here, started studying the habitat, um, then uh, started making a list of some of the species that is there and um, obviously storytelling with videos uh, uh, a lot more difficult as well because it's it's a time-consuming process. Um, and then I realized there was a, uh, a park just five minutes away from where I live. We had a few family of owls. Um, we had a, res- a reasonably good amount of raptors. And it was a very, it's a very tiny place. I mean, half the size of a football ground, maybe. That's it. Wow. Uh, the, the entire yeah. space. But then uh, it was a nice uh, triangle because we had the oceans. Uh, we had a small patch of mangroves and forested patches. So it was a... Uh, nice triangle, and you know the biodiversity was just just interesting. Kingfishers, um, uh, because of the uh, mangroves, we had a lot of uh, you know birds coming in. Um, because of the forested patches, we have uh, goshawks and hawk eagles and uh, honey buzzards and all of them coming. <clears throat> and interestingly, <coughs> uh, Singapore kind of falls on the migration path. Migration path. <clears throat> so during winter season, I noticed. Uh, a lot of uh, migratory birds kind of do like a, a pit stop, you know, uh, for sometimes a week or two weeks before they continue towards Borneo and other parts of India and Asia. So that was another interesting period for me. So, um, so yeah, it started off as just a fun project to kill time. And then <clears throat> uh, somebody in WWF and uh, our uh, national park here in Singapore happened to see the video and... Uh, uh, I think in the first week we had about a hundred thousand hits on the YouTube. Uh, so a lot of people were like wow. shocked, saying uh, one of the most um, uh, one of the most uh, familiar comments was, "I can't believe this is Singapore." Uh, so that was like a win-win for me because that was the outcome I was looking for. Because I felt a lot of Singaporeans themselves did not know uh, what they had here in Singapore. Um, and I felt more and more people in Singapore uh, need to appreciate what we have <clears throat> because we have some, I think, we have some incredibly beautiful uh, parks. I mean, they're not large in size because we are a tiny island, uh, but just the design and uh, there's a lot of work gone in by national parks and stuff like that. So though we don't have huge mammals like tigers and stuff like that, I mean, we, we have civet cats, we have pangolins, uh, we have we have leopard cats, um, colobus, flying lemurs, uh, loads. Um, so uh, so it was interesting because a lot of people who who Singaporeans who lived here all their life had not seen some of the um, species that I I put out uh, in the, in the video. Uh, so That's it kind amazing. of went viral. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of again went viral, and then um, that kind of gave me motivation to do more. You know, I said okay. Uh, it makes sense. I think it's a good opportunity to um, educate people locally over here in terms of uh, the amazing biodiversity we have. Um, then um, WWF is interested because they saw the video um, uh, and uh, they said, hey, why don't we get together and uh, do your next video? I said, great. Uh, if you guys uh, you know, willing to pay for it, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, so they, they funded my uh, next video, which um, was a 
focus more on Singapore and not just one park. So we went around filming all across the country. We did a lot of night filming. Um, and it was, a, it was a slow process because it was just the two of us, no big crew, just me and my partner. Um, we went around collecting a lot of footage because I was mostly looking for behavioral kind of footage. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's how it happened. And then from there, I started doing more and more videos. Um, started um, people from the local universities, from the film schools, because there are not many people who do nature videos here in Singapore. <clears throat> While there are a lot of uh, people who do a lot of other commercial work. Uh, so I think for, it was kind of new for a lot of people. So um, I started doing a lot of talks, small sessions. Uh, I kind of do mangrove walks sometimes, you know, take kids out from schools uh, just to show them around the mangroves. Um, yeah, it's 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 been that's, a very interesting two, three years. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful because I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people would think, you know, what is there to, I mean, I hear this all the time, in fact, you know, what is there to film now? Everything's been filmed, you know, National Geographic, BBC, PBS Nature, you know, Smith, you name it, it, it all, all species have been on there. There's just nothing to film anymore. So how could I ever make a film to compete? And yet here you are in the middle of the pandemic, which is we're we're just coming out of, and you were able to go out film something because you wanted to for yourself wwf sees it and now you're working with them working on uh, you know filming wildlife for uh for them and, and that's amazing because it just shows the kinds of opportunities out there that you know those opportunities still exist you know you can still be taken up and recognized and and, and start getting paid work for doing this stuff but you have to be out there doing it in the first place. You know, I think, you know, that's the thing we have to, you know, I drill into people all the time when people say to me, well, how do I, how do I get into this business? I, I'm really interested in being a wildlife filmmaker. And I say, well, what have you filmed? And they say, well, I haven't done anything yet. Because, <laughs> you know, I, mean, start, I don't see yeah. the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it starts, and it's like, well, you, you have to make, <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. I said st start building a portfolio. You 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 have time on your hands. You have some reasonably good equipment. I mean, just 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 start shooting. I mean, it's um, because people because a lot of people ask me, hey, how did you get this footage or how do you get this shot? Uh, how do you get this? So uh, sometimes it's it's hard to explain this because, um, for example, I have a small, I think, twenty second clips where there are these two match keepers, uh, you know, kind of going at each other and fighting. It took me, uh, it took me three months just to get that ten sec, ten seconds because you know I, I'm there every day, you know, just lying down, coming back home, completely drenched in, uh, in mud, mud, and and because I was filming me in an urban place, uh, and it's not like wild, wild like in Africa or, or India. Um, a lot of humans around, so sometimes I'm I'm lying there just waiting for something to happen and getting closer and closer uh, to some of the match keepers and somebody would just walk up to me and say, Hey JP, what are you doing? And all the match keepers just disappear. You know, I'm yeah. like, Jesus, I spent last two hours lying down <laughs> over here. I mean, I mean, fair enough. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard to explain. You I mean, need a big sign. You need to carry a <laughs> sign around saying filming in progress. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so that, I mean, I, I love that because I think you'll become known as the mud skipper guy. You know, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where when you, when you pick a species, 
you do kind of get known for it. You know, one of the things I'm known for is is filming urban bears, you know, black bears in urban environments because I do so much of it. Once you become known for filming a particular species, then people start seeking you out and people start saying, well, we need, you know, we want this sequence on mudskippers. Jayaprakash in Singapore, he's out doing this all the time. They're on his Vimeo feed and his YouTube and his Instagram. And so then people start reaching out. And that has happened to me with Black Bears. I know it's happened to a ton of other filmmakers who specialize. Certainly people like um, uh, Patrick Dykstra, who's on the podcast, who was filming uh, Orca and Humpback Whales. And his footage was seen uh, and ended up being in um, Blue Planet. So, you know, it's one of those ways to get recognized is to make it easy on yourself and pick a species that is nearby something you have access to instead of think thinking well i want to film you know uh, wildebeest but it's going to cost me 10 grand to get out there and then i've only got a week and you know pick something that's on your door so how far away are you from the mud skippers uh probably uh 10 minutes away there you go 10 minutes i mean that's fantastic so you can you can pretty much film mud skippers whenever you want you just go out you decide you're out there filming <clears throat> yeah but no, i think to but I think your initial question, you said people feel like, okay, Africa, for example, a lot of my my friends don't want to go to Africa anymore because they're like, especially, you know, friends who are really good at what they do and, you know, they've already built amazing portfolios of photographs. They're like, Africa's already done and dusted. People have killed it. There's nothing left to done. But like you said, I mean, um, my inspiration to go out every morning is because every day is a new day. Um and every time it's something new. I mean, that's what is beautiful about about nature. No matter how much is being done, every time I see something, it's 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 in a it's it's it could be as simple as on a new branch or on a new new leaf or yeah. you know doing something else against a different background. I mean, it's <clears throat> so yeah. It's, for me, it's like I'm, I just can't wait to get there because I'm hoping I'm going to see something new today. That that's kind yeah. of what keeps me going. Yeah. And of course, you know, in this day and age, behavior is changing with animals. We're seeing this across the world. Behavior is changing. And there's certainly behaviors that are happening now with certain species that has not been seen before. And so we're at that critical time as storytellers where if we can capture that and bring that to the attention of the world and scientists and researchers, then that sparks interest is, okay, why is this happening? What can we do to, to change that? That's happening more and more. The fact that filmmakers go out and it's the first time behavior has been seen, it's happening, you know, way more and helping science. And actually, uh, going back to Patrick, Patrick's uh, new show called Chase, Chasing Ocean Giants is all about him going out and trying to film new behavior happening on you know with the scientists there and trying to capture stuff that's not been seen before so um jay prakash let's i, I want to go back in time to again where you where you gave up your job and you you took on photography what were how long did it take you to start getting paid gigs did you have paid gigs already lined up with nature photography or was that something you had to work on well on and off just small small projects here and there um but in my case i think uh, just two weeks after i won the national geographic award i got uh my first project from uh, national geographic asia uh because um especially because i was in singapore i think it's really not 
uh, like a hub hub for a lot of uh, wildlife filming and, you know, to get a lot of yeah. wildlife related work. So I had to expand my scope. So yeah. I, w- I wasn't just doing wildlife. I was doing everything around the environment. I was doing stories on plastic. I was doing stories around recycling. I was doing stories around the environment. I was doing stories around conservation. So I think sometimes for, for people like us, for freelancers, it's, it's important to be relevant to what's happening around us and, uh-huh. you know, n- not just be blind and say, this is the only thing I will do. Then it's, it's hard to, hard to survive. Yeah. And again, there were, there were not many, many, many people doing uh, something like this. So I think uh, followed by that, I got my first uh, local gig from the government themselves uh, on uh, recycling, right? They were running a recycling campaign. They wanted me to um, uh, do like a, f- uh, a photo story for a, a moving exhibition across Sim- Singapore and what happens in Singapore with respect to uh, this whole process end to end of recycling. So they took me all to the recycling facilities um, um, we call it Semcorp. We have a small island where we we take all the trash to a little island in Singapore, and where we you know kind of burn them. That's how we we keep the country clean. Um, so it was, it, it was a very, very... it's exceptionally clean. It's exceptionally clean. Oh, I remember absolutely. I, <laughs> I came and did a tour of I did a tour of twenty schools giving talks with National Geographic back in two thousand and three, and at Singapore Zoo, and it, it's and I had been there about fifteen years earlier as well on a trip through to Australia, but it always amazed me when you get out out of the airport and it's just it's so spick and span. I mean the roads are the cleanest roads I've seen anywhere in the world. It's amazing. Well, absolutely. There's there's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into keeping the country clean, um, including a lot of education around, you know, for example, we have blue bins, green bins, what goes into the green bins, what goes into the blue bins. So it's it's it's, it's just interesting. So that happened. Um, um, so I was relatively still new in Singapore. So I was um, very happy uh, for Singapore to have given kind of like a newcomer, an opportunity to do something uh, serious as this, and a paid gig. Uh, things rolled off from there, and then um, uh, did a lot of uh, paid talks, paid gigs. Um, that's when I started working with uh, two large NGOs. One is called um, Orangutan Alliance, and the other one is called Bonio Orangutan Survival. I think BOS is well known. Uh, we still have about 400 or 500 orangutans in rehab, um, before they're being released uh, to the wild. Um, so I uh, do a lot of uh, promotion for them. I do a lot of um, fundraising activities for them. Uh, we did some exhibitions in places like Germany, UK, and a few other places to raise funds. Um, in fact, this um, this coming o- this coming September, I'm back in Borneo to do a short documentary. Um, I mean, I... It's, it was my idea, though, but finally they they decided to uh, fund the project on this boy who's who lives in the U.S. who who talks about orangutans and does a lot of education to kids on orangutans. He's, he's one of those uh, little baby conservationists. You know, he, he's only seen an orangutan in the zoo. He's never seen a wild orangutan. Wow. <clears throat> so That's his parents amazing. are yeah. so so his parents are actually bringing him to Borneo for the first time so they can show this boy a real orangutan. Um, wow. So the organization that I was working for wants to support the story. So there's a whole crew coming in from Australia. So I decided to convert this into a, 
nice little documentary and call it uh, the boy's name is Jack Jack goes to Borneo and maybe take it to some film festivals and stuff like that you know should be interesting excellent yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's fantastic I, I i love that and and you know though there it's such a popular genre when you can bring in you know a human interacting with the wildlife not necessarily interacting but you know being inspired by wildlife and doing some good in that way um it sounds fascinating so we'll look out for that when you when you get that finished so i i i'm desperate for you to give some advice to people who are photographers nature photographers whether they're established whether they're aspiring nature photographers or you know wherever they are in their photography uh, realm um, I want, you know, just what, what advice do you have in terms of this kind of transitioning into the video world? Uh, you know, what, what do you think would work best for them to do? Well, some people would disagree, uh, especially people who started off with video only. But then I feel, especially if you've already been doing a lot of nature photography, uh, transitioning into uh, videography should be relatively easy because you already out there shooting nature. You have a good understanding of animal behavior. You know where they come. You have a better good understanding of light um, and all those aspects. So it should be. A, I think most people find vid, videography a little more scary because they're worried about the post production part of this whole. Uh, it still you know, scares me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I, I thought so too, right? I mean, I honestly, I avoided video for a long time because I used to look at like a Final Cut Pro or, um, or one of the softwares and, you know, look at people editing and I would say, Jesus, I'm not going to do this. This sounds, you know, crazy tough or crazy hard. Um, but like I said, the, the pandemic is a blessing in disguise. I had the time. I said, uh, why not learn to pick up a new skill? Uh, though I don't have to do it professionally. I mean, I... I would typically go to a professional editor if I'm doing a full-length video story for a, for my client, but for my basic edits and stuff like that. But also that as a filmmaker, it's good to know a bit of editing because uh, it's easy to visualize the story in your head. So, you know, you kind of know how you're going to piece these scenes together. Uh, so all that uh, uh, makes... So I don't think it is, it is difficult. Um, I think sometimes you just have to have that faith and, you know, jump into it. I would say all photographers should at least try a little bit of video um, uh, and experiment with it before they decide whether they want to, whether that is something that they really want to do or not could be a decision that could take later on. But I think for most nature photographers, it should be a relatively um, easier transition is what I personally feel because I felt, um, because I felt uh, it was a lot easier for me because I already had like a good understanding of behavior, for example, just, just com composition of, uh, you know, how you want to compose a picture and all the stuff actually makes it a lot more easier for, for newcomers. But if you're one of those guys who are just going out to like safari kind of a photography, then filmmaking is, filmmaking is a lot different uh, if you want to just transition because... Uh, you really need to spend time uh, understanding uh, the habitat where you want to film in. You can't just walk in and say, okay, today I'm going to make a short film. You're not probably going to see anything. Right? Uh, spend a lot of time. Um, like when I started, I used a lot more of the binoculars before I picked up the camera. So 
you know, just observation. It's 90% observation, 10%. I think the technical aspects of videography is probably the easiest thing of wildlife filmmaking. Right? If you've learned maths and physics and science in school, working the camera and getting the settings right and all this stuff is child's play. But the harder part is where to find them, how they behave, what's the bird's favorite perch, what time they come, what time they go, uh, how they behave in certain scenarios. I mean, that is 90% of it if you really want to do, um, you know, good stories through through videos, especially with nature and wildlife. Uh, so observation, observation, observation. I mean, take notes. Um, um, so that's, I mean, that's the way to go. I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, no, I, I couldn't agree more. It's perfect because it's so true. The, the, everyone worries about gear from the get-go. And the gear is, the gear can be learned so quickly in a crash course on YouTube videos, wherever you want to learn about gear, you can learn about gear and, and understand how it works very fast. Whereas the the behavioral side, understanding what an animal is going to do before it does it so that you can capture it. Um, and then, of course, storytelling. You know, storytelling, I, I tell my, uh, you know, my members of my mentoring class all the time, it's all about story. You can, you can go and make a film with an iPhone if your story is great and you've got a great story and you can capture it, then it's, you know, it's worth showing. But without a story and without knowing how to visually tell that story and build sequences, and of course, I, I would think with, with stills, I don't do a lot of stills, never really have, but not, not in a big way. But there's still a certain amount of, you know, you want to take a certain amount of photos if there's behavior going on to build a sequence of, of images. Well, obviously, with video, image sequences are everything. I mean, it's how you tell a good story is to have a sequence that shows the story unfolding. You know, it's not just a case of running out there and pressing record. And, oh, I, I got some shots of some sandpipers. I should be good. <laughs> you know, they have to do something. Like you said, you waited three months to get them, you know, at each other. And 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 that's behavior. And there's a story that, that can be part of a bigger story. Absolutely. But without that, yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think that that's great. And, and it's, you know, it's fantastic to hear you say that transitioning because I think there's a lot of people who want to do that. And I think it probably they get worried about the technical side too much, as you say, because really you're just changing, you know, one switch on the camera and now you're pressing record and, and following stuff. Yeah. Yes, there's more to it than that. And then honestly, uh, these days, cameras and equipment, I mean, cameras are becoming better and better and better and better. Um, in my, for example, I use uh, A7S3, Sony FX3 and FS6. So you, just, just incredible cameras these guys make these days. Right? Gone are those days. Uh, I recently got my uh, first red Komodo. So I've been just experimenting uh, slowly uh, with uh, the red. So, um, so yeah, so uh, it's more about visualizing the story you want to tell because it's it's i think it's super important to kind of visualize close your eyes and visualize what you want to do and the reason i say that is because when i'm out in the field if i'm not if i'm not visualizing those i may miss something you know because and later on when i'm coming and on the editing table i realize okay you know what how did i miss this so it would have been nice if i had a sequence like this or a sequence like that so i think like you said it's 
the key is to visualize the story, you know. Um, so when you're out there, um, you know, like a, uh, like a habitat shot, right? I mean, for these days, people mostly shoot for Instagram and Facebook. So everybody's just zoomed in all the time. It's kind of boring after a point. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's knowing where your delivery is going. You know, why are you filming it? Because so much of the time, I've heard this before, I've heard people say to me, um, you know, I've got this footage of, you know, this particular animal. Do you think I can sell it somewhere? I'll say, oh, well, what's it doing? And how many different shots have you got? And they'll say, oh, it's just this one shot. And I'll say, you know, you can't tell a story with one shot. You, that's the whole point of sequences. And as you say, if you've got one focal length and you're, you know, you're not understanding the need for, uh, you know, changing focal length, although that doesn't mean you need an expensive camera or big lenses. Yeah, too, too. It's It's building that story with sequencing, different focal lengths, building, uh, establishing shots so you can see where where you're at, uh, people can understand it. Um, Jayapa Crash, where can people find out more about what you're doing? Where can they find you online? Well, um, they can find me on my website, which is jayaprakashbojan.com. Um, uh, lately, I've been more active on my Instagram, which is, again, jayaprakashbojan. Uh, 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 but if you want to look at all the cool videos we've been doing, you can look up for JD, which is J for Jack, D for Delta, Wild Productions uh, on okay. YouTube. So we have a lot of cool videos there and um, we have a lot of um, videos coming soon as well. That's fantastic. Well, what I'll do is I'll make sure I put links to all of those on our on uh, the website page, so masterwildlifefilmmaking.com. There'll be your episode page there with a bio and those links on there as well. So anyone listening can just go straight there and click on it and get to find where you're at. So um, just lastly, Jay Prakash, what do you have coming up? Uh, I know you're going September, you're going back to Borneo. Any other filmmaking that you've got lined up? Well, uh, we working on two upcoming stories. Um, one is on um, uh, uh, illegal uh, wildlife trade here in Southeast Asia. It's a documentary I'm working on uh, with um, WWF. And um, we have a few other stories we're working on, on uh, still working on the storyboard and stuff like that on some of the wetlands that we have over here. Um, the local government has done a Tremendous job uh, fighting for these places to conserve them. So that's another story. Um, um, few projects in the pipeline with uh, National Geographic Asia. So I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about them right now, but uh, probably going to be hosting some photographers from other countries soon here in Singapore to do some stories. Oh, wonderful. Um, well, other than that, I have a few of my other, other passion projects lined up. So... Uh, seems to be a good year. Uh, looking, really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it too. I, I can't wait to see what you're producing, Jaya Crash. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the podcast. And um, again, uh, you know, I think it's wonderful you've made this transition. Actually, I should just ask you: Are you are you now 100% photography, or what, what's the percentage between wow. sorry, videography? <laughs> uh, probably, probably 90% videography, 10% uh, photography. I mean. Once a photographer, I guess you're always a photographer yeah. because because a lot of times out in the field, uh, when there's something seriously happening, sometimes I have this conflict in my hand. You know, maybe <laughs> I should just snap two shots as well. You know, even though you can take some nice 
screen grabs uh, with all these high quality equipment but there's there's this little bit in me which tells me maybe take this one picture before you do videos you know <laughs> so yeah i was wondering that that must be yeah i can see you know it's always hard when you're on a shoot for a production to remember to do production stills for marketing and now of course it really helps that we can take screen grabs yeah uh, because a lot of the time it's forgotten but that, that's fantastic well i'm so glad you're part of the wildlife filmmaking uh, family now and uh, look forward to see uh, what what comes out in the future um, on your youtube channel and, and elsewhere thanks so much jayaprakash Thank you, Jake. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for finding me on Instagram. <laughs> and uh, thanks again for having me as your guest. I appreciate it. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please consider leaving a rating and a comment. And subscribe if you haven't already done so from wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. The ratings really help rank the podcast and get more people to find it. Also, if you know someone who is into wildlife filmmaking, or maybe they're a nature photographer and they're looking to transition and they aren't listening to the podcast currently, please tell them about it. Word of mouth is the best way for me to build my listeners uh, for this podcast. I would very much appreciate it. And also, if you are looking to break into the wildlife filmmaking industry and you're just looking for help, you're looking for answers, for burning questions that you have, then please consider looking at my Master Wildlife Filmmaking Mentoring uh, Group and Mentorship Program. You can find that at Jake Willers. Dot com and just click on the mentoring tab or learn more tab where it says it on just the homepage there. You can find it very, very easily. And then lastly, if you want to help support this podcast, the best way you can do it other than just telling other people about the podcast is to go to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash MWFP. That's patreon.com forward slash MWFP. And there you can get all sorts of bonus content. We have extracts from podcasts that didn't make it to the, these episodes because they went on so long uh, because I didn't want to stop talking with our guests. So we put the extra content there. There are catch-up conversations with previous guests, finding out what they've been doing since I last spoke to them and so much more of the behind the scenes. Please consider taking a look. That is the best. Best way to sponsor this podcast and get more episodes in the future. Until next time, I'll see you later. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.